Nora, how do you make a tissue dance? You put a little boogie in it. <laughs> Come on. No, look at Bob and I, Bob and I answer. went to the same joke school. Okay. <laughs> I knew you would know that. <laughs> I knew it. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking, and I know dad jokes, which are just regular jokes, but told by dads, or anyone wearing comfy white sneakers, belted cargo shorts, and flashing a Costco executive membership. So basically me. That little jokester you heard earlier, trying to stump me with, how do you make a tissue dance? Come on. That's Karen, who is also not a dad, but who has a dad. Karen's story starts in 1998 in Spain. So I leave two months after graduating high school, and I go to this land where 18-year-olds can legally drink. I was lucky enough to receive a scholarship through Rotary International, so I was set up with a host family. I was going to the bars every night. I thought, I should just get paid for this. I'm going to be a bartender. So... You know, it's not like bartending, like, here, where you're mixing drinks and, you know, it's very, like, you have to go to school for it or something along those lines. No, you're mixing, like, Jack and Coke over there. So, basically, if you're, like, an able-bodied person with a smile, like, you can get behind a bar, you can serve up some drinks, everybody's happy. So, that's what I did. So, I, like, moved out of my host family's house. I, like, got an apartment with a friend to start bartending. And I'm meeting all these people, and I'm having a great time. And, you know, it's sort of like Coyote Ugly, where we're, like, dancing on bars and just, you know, again, Ricky Martin's playing. Like, this is a good time. Karen was young, vibrant, living the life, la vida, learning the language. I don't know how to say that in Spanish yet. I'm only level four on Duolingo. Not not a sponsor, but probably should be. She was taking siestas. She was going to parties. She was making friends. And I had adopted a dog, <laughs> Sugar Bear. She was a little West Highland Terrier that was a dog rescue out there. So I'm living my good life with, you know, my little dog and everything's great. Oh, that is great. And after a time, Karen knew one thing for sure. She was never going back to her hometown in the Philadelphia suburbs. Never. No way. Spain is it. My plans are to live there forever. To go to the beach and get really tan and eat a lot of good Spanish food, hang out with my friends. You know, maybe one day I'll get married. Who knows? There's so many guys to choose from. Like, how could I even think about settling down right now? But there were definitely aspects of homesickness. But, you know, when you're weighing, like, the pros and cons of your life and the homesickness as compared to all the life that you're living, there was just no comparison. It was so exciting and fun. It seems like the only thing left for her back across the pond, as they say in Britain, which is not the same as Spain, the only thing for Karen back in the United States, Los Estados Unidos, is su familia, her family. And Karen's family, by the way, they're, they're great. 
She loves them. She has a brother. She has a dad, Bob. They're kind. They're supportive. They love each other. They're just, they're a great family. So there was like this seismic shift in our relationship when I went off to Spain because my dad was always really fascinated with different countries and with all the traveling that he did. You know, he all of a sudden, you know, realized like, okay, I'm, I'm letting her go. I'm doing her thing. And this is probably one of the most exciting things that she could be doing. So I think in a lot of ways, he lived vicariously through me. So our relationship became this amazing father-daughter relationship where we could talk about, you know, what it's like to live in a different culture. And, you know, he had been to Spain before. So he was asking me like what kind of food I was eating and he could, you know, remember the type of food that he ate there. We talked like we did long distance calling. Um, but he would send me letters like all the time and he would send me these big care packages and it would be filled with like, do you know what a tasty cake is? I don't. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, I'm sorry for you. That's what, like, tasty cakes are the most amazing things. So they're specific to this area. They have, like, these little peanut butter cakes, and then they have these things called crimpets, and they're, like, this little frosted cake full of goodness. And it's, like, famous in this area, and they have little pies and stuff, and you cannot get them in Spain. So my dad used to, like, ship me tasty cakes for like a taste of home and thankfully they didn't melt and then he would ship me like you know books that I could read in English so like you know he would send me like Stephen King novels <laughs> and so things much. like that yeah he would just send me all these great care packages I'm and just imagining these... Bob like going to the post office oh, being like Bob. send these to my daughter in Spain yes Making that was 100% him yeah, he would tell anybody and everybody that I lived in Spain. Just like he'd be walking down the street, like yelling it out. That's that's what he was like. That was Bob. Bob was a hardworking guy who, who had worked hard all his life. That's a sentence I wrote. I'd like to pause and give me the worst sentence award. I I accept. Okay. Yeah, there you go. He was a hardworking guy who worked hard all his life. So he grew up in Allentown, which is like, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the song by Billy Joel. Okay, first of all, I don't have to stand this kind of disrespect. Yes, I've heard heard Billy Joel's Allentown. I may not have heard of your regional delicacies, but yes, I've heard of Billy Joel and his famous song, which references working in Allentown. So, Bob enlisted in the service at age 17 during the Vietnam War just to get out of Allentown, and he never went back. So he never went to college. He just went to Vietnam, came back, and he started working. And he worked his way all through, like, RCA and Bell Atlantic and all these communication companies. He was a very smart person. He was a very motivated person. He really loved his family, really, really loved my mom. So he was an affectionate person. He was very warm and loving. 
the one really sad part about my childhood is that, you know, my father was always sick and my mother was also sick. She had breast cancer when she was diagnosed when I was two. So the security of seeing love and a solid foundation in marriage and that safety net was kind of offset by the idea that, you know, they were in and out of the hospital a lot. So, you know, as a kid, it was a really scary feeling. He had this kidney problem, which we believe originally stemmed from some kind of injury. And then it, you know, he lost a kidney. And this was back in, you know, the 80s. So he had like one of those huge scars where they like open you up from front to back. So we could always see that scar. It was like ever present. And, you know, we knew that he was missing a kidney. So, I mean, growing up as a young child, I don't think we, like, I truly understood the depth of it. But like, I knew that, you know, my parents are sick and, you know, this is scary and it's hard when they're in the hospital and away from us. But it wasn't until I was a teenager that I really started to like truly understand how troublesome it was. Karen's mom died when Karen was 10. Karen had spent her life being raised by two sick parents, and one had just died. That put her own father's health into sharper focus. Bob was now a single father with serious health issues. He now had two tweens to take care of on his own. You know, like, I remember a family friend taking me to get a training bra, like, to go to the funeral. And it was something that, you know, I was, like, so embarrassed about. Like, I don't want my dad to know. But clearly he knew because, like, he sent her with me. And then, you know, turning, like, going through puberty and, like, you know, getting my period, it was, like, super embarrassing to come home from summer camp and be like, um, I need you to take me shopping for pads. And so, of course, he, like, takes me to this little drugstore and this little old lady behind the counter, like, took pity on him because he went up there and obviously explained the situation. She, like, came over and had to, like, walk me through it. So he knew how to dad, but he didn't know how to mom, you know, especially to a young girl. So I would love to say that my relationship with my dad in in those eight years before I left my household, I would love to say that, you know, we got along great and we like muddled through together and we banded together as a family. But the reality was, is that it was not very great. I mean, my dad just, he was thrown into this situation. He had to grieve for somebody that he truly loved. And then he had to figure out how to raise, you know, two kids that were like on the cusp of, you know, figuring out who they are. And I mean, it's such a tumultuous time to be a tween and then a teenager and go through high school. And he just did not know how to navigate that, especially with a girl. Like his solution to all that was to just kind of like lock me up and throw away the key as best as he could. Like I was always grounded, you know, because I really just think that he didn't know how to let me be a teenager And that was his solution for everything. And at the time, like, there were so many days where I hated him. Like, I just hated him. But looking back now, I recognize that he was just kind of doing his best in a really shitty situation. 
Karen and her dad are going through the ordinary teenage stuff in an extraordinary situation. So when I was 15, he was still working at this time. You know, he was still traveling. We had like a nanny whenever he was away. And things were not great with Bob's health. One day, he was on a flight home from Europe, and he caught a virus. That virus led to a heart attack, one so bad that a priest was called to perform last rites while Karen and her brother witnessed. Bob did not die, but he was forced into early retirement. And he ended up on a transplant list for a new kidney. So, by the time Karen got her phone cards to call home from Spain in between siestas and bartending shifts, Bob had been waiting for years for a new kidney. Every time I talked to him, he was, like, relatively peppy. But, you know, when I would ask him about his appointments and how he's doing, but at this point, you know, he's hooked up to a dialysis machine for 12 hours overnight. And... You know, I knew that it really bothered him on an emotional level, but I don't think I realized, like, how it was kind of eating away at him physically until, like, he started just sounding more and more down, like, every time I talked to him. And he just sounded just, like, defeated. And that was sort of my cue to realize that maybe not everything is as great as it seems. Like, maybe these care packages are sort of like, you know, masking what's really going on at home. We'll be right back. We're back, and Karen has realized that her dad's dad jokes might be masking something really, really wrong with his health. One day before Karen is supposed to start a bartending shift, she and Bob are talking on the phone. And Bob sounds especially down. He sounds sad, kind of distant. You know, I was asking him, like, you know, Dad, are you doing okay? And he's like, you know, I'll be fine. Like, I'm fine. You know, like, kind of downplaying everything. But, you know, again, I heard that defeat in his voice. And something just sort of, like, clicked with me. And I just kind of thought, you know, I don't know if he's being totally honest with where he's at. And he sort of said, you know, like, I'm a tough old bird type of thing. And I just thought, that's really not something you say when you're, like, peak health. So I went into my bartending shift, and I couldn't concentrate all night. And I remember just waking up the next day and thinking, like, I can't just sit here, like, having this awesome life while my dad slowly dies back home. 
And that was really like the moment that I decided, you know, I have to, I have to at least try and do something about this. So the list of things that Karen can do about this are pretty short. She can go and support her dad emotionally and physically, make sure his dialysis is going well, organize his pills into a little container. She can go with him to doctor's appointments. She can give him what he needs, companionship, love, maybe a kidney? Yeah, a kidney. Karen decides that she's going to give her dad one of her kidneys. I had no idea of the magnitude of that type of decision. I just sort of thought, oh, like, we'll figure it out. Like, you know, if I'm a match, then we'll just have this surgery and be on our merry way. You know, again, like at this point, I'm a 19-year-old kid. Like, I have really no clue about what it would take. I don't even know how you get started. I just assumed that I would fly home and tell everybody that's what's going to happen and provide I'm a match. Everybody just, you know, balloons released from the ceiling and that's it. Like, it's You done. get on a table, you lean over slightly, they pull it out, you stand up. <laughs> They're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> off you go. <laughs> right. Like, high five and I'm just going to book a flight back to Spain. Like, nothing ever happened. Like, win-win for everybody. That's what I was thinking. Have you and your brother (laughs) talked about this at all? No, not at all. And she and her dad hadn't talked about it either. Karen had just decided and booked a ticket. I totally lied, and I told my dad that I was homesick and that I just wanted to come home for an indefinite period of time and just figure out what I want to do. And my dad was like, okay, well, you know, I'm happy to have you back, but you're not bringing that dog. (laughs) He's like, I'm going to end up taking care of the dog. You're not bringing the dog. So at this point, like I'm pissed because, you know, I I know what I'm thinking. And he's like digging in over like a, a dog, which he's a total dog person anyway. So I'm just like, well, you know, if I can't bring the dog, I'm not coming home. And I like hang up the phone. And then... 15 minutes later, my dad calls and he said, fine, bring the dog, come back home. So Karen packs up her life and sugar bear and flies home. At this point, she hasn't seen her dad in a year and a half. She steps off the plane. I just see like signs fly up and cheering and clapping and screaming. And it's like all of my friends from high school and my dad right in the middle of it. And they're all just like screaming and clapping. And of course, everybody getting off the plane, like, you know, because they have signs held up like, Karen, we love you. So everybody on the plane around me is like wondering, like, who is this person? So I like run through customs and my dad is just like pushed forward and we just grab each other and hug. He was crying so hard, like he was so happy to see me. One of her friends actually got a photo of this moment, of Karen and Bob being reunited. And then we pulled apart to look at each other, and that's the moment that my friend snapped this photo. So he's looking at me with his face all scrunched up because he's crying, and you just see the back of my head, like, and the side of my face just 
like beaming at him. Like I was just so happy to see him and so happy to have that welcome home. I mean, there's nothing more welcoming than being in the embrace of your parents. There's nothing that feels like home more than that. If you're looking at the photo, you just see a dad and his daughter looking at each other in adoration. Bob is burly. Karen's got just an honest-to-goodness excellent head of hair. Really, really good stuff. But Karen knows Bob better than most people. And being away from someone you love for a year and a half, the differences in their appearance the next time you see them, they're much easier to spot. He looked sick. He just didn't look like himself. I mean, he definitely had some jaundice going on. He looked tired. And, like, he was kind of slow, too. He was, like, more slow-moving. And it was just that feeling of something not being right and him not being able to fight it. Okay, so at this point, your dad thinks you're coming home just to, because you're homesick and you want to figure your life out. So do you have a plan for what you're going to say to him? No plan, much like any 19-year-old out there. Like, I just have no plan. I'm winging it. I don't know when I'm going to tell him. I don't know what I'm going to tell him. I just know that I'm going to do it because I just kind of wanted to settle in. And also, I was scared. Like, I was scared for his reaction. And I think deep down I was scared to like move forward. Like this is what I really wanted to do, but you know, it's a, it's a big scary prospect to think that everybody's life is kind of going to change. But you know, I think I was just scared of the process itself. So Karen and Bob just settle in together back into a new routine with Sugar Bear as their little sidekick. Shocker, he loved the dog. Every day they would, like, nap together. Our days were really cool. Like, we just hung out together. We went out to lunch. We went out to dinner. We hung out with Sugar Bear. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, it was like falling back into a really nice routine, but minus the teen angst, minus the overprotective father, and minus any, you know, constraints of school and pressure and work and anything along those lines. Like, it was just like two people hanging out on vacation in the Philadelphia suburbs. (laughs) Those were their days. But Bob's nighttime routine required 12 hours of being hooked up to his dialysis machine. Um, Your kidney, by the way, that's what cleans your blood for you. For Bob, his kidney does not do that. The dialysis machine does that for him. It cycles his blood overnight and cleans it. Without that dialysis or a functioning kidney, he would die. With a new kidney... Hopefully, Karen's kidney, he wouldn't need to use the dialysis machine anymore. 
So it was about from 8 o'clock on that he had to be hooked up to the machine. So right after dinner, he would start preparing. So we would go out to an early dinner. And then as soon as we would get home, he would start preparing. And then he would be hooked up by 8 o'clock. And then it was 12 hours. So it was from like 8 to 8 that he was hooked up to this machine. It looks like a really old large fax machine (laughs) or like maybe a really old large word processor that would probably be more accurate so it would just sit on you know his bedside table but it took up the whole table and then it has all these like tubes coming out of it and it's really loud like you flip the switch and the tubes are hooked up to him through his side and it's doing the work of a kidney and that's a lot of hard work for a machine. So it's just really loud and it sounds like you're in, you know, a hospital room. That's exactly what it sounds like. It takes a month of this. Naps, hanging out, sugar bear, lunch, early dinner, dialysis. Before Karen works up the nerve to tell her dad why she really came home. It just got to the point where I felt like, okay, I've got to say something like I can't keep like how long am I going to be here before I actually drop this bomb and tell him like this is what I want to do. So we're just like eating breakfast and it's very like nonchalant just any other day and like I'm like buttering toast and I'm like listen like I want to donate my kidney. I think that this is something we should do. (laughs) It's sort of like you know the record stops and goes You know, and he just like looks at me and says, what do you, you know, like, no, no, that's not happening. We're not doing that. And he's like, you're a kid. I'm like, you know, I'm an adult kid. I'm an adult kid. And this is what I want to do. And he was just very adamant about, you know, I'm not going to let you make that kind of sacrifice. That's not something that is going to benefit either of us. And that's when I had to pull out the big guns. And I basically told him, you know, look, there was nothing that we could do for mom. Like she had cancer. There's nothing that you can give when there's cancer involved. It just happens and that's it. They either make it or they don't. But there's no way that you can really intervene. So I said, you know, we couldn't do anything for mom And now we have this opportunity to do something for you. So let's just do it. And that's what finally changed his mind. And he said, okay, we're going to look into it. Karen calls her dad's doctor and they go through all the necessary testing and evaluations, psychological exams and physical exams. But there's also the question of, will Bob's body even have a chance of accepting Karen's kidney? Are they even a match for transplant? And once we figured out that I was, it was just like full steam ahead. Organ donation is often much harder on the donor than the recipient. Karen's supposed to have some pain and recovery time after the procedure, but she should recover fully. That's actually why organ donation is awesome, and you should all sign up to donate your organs if you are not using them. You know, you only need 20% of one kidney to function properly throughout life. They told me that there would be no long-term 
changes or issues in my life and health wise there hasn't been. And what are the risks for your dad? Risks for my dad. So there's the risk after that that you can go into immediate rejection or that the kidney just won't take at all. There's always that risk that it's not going to take. If Bob's body accepts Karen's kidney, it will start cleaning his blood immediately, which means he won't need to be on dialysis anymore. But that means if the kidney is rejected by Bob's body, he won't be on dialysis anymore to clean his blood, and he'll die. That rejection can happen at any time, so Bob will be monitored closely at the start. And as time goes on, the probability of rejection and kidney failure goes down. Especially after two years, the odds of rejection go way down, which means it's most critical and risky at the start. So we thought if we can make it through a few hurdles, he'll be good. And that's it. All the tests have been done. All the warnings have been made. All the papers have been signed. The only thing left to do is take a kidney out of Karen and put it into Bob. They go in. They go under. And they come back up. It's like waking up from, you know, like the deepest dream possible that you definitely can't remember. And, you know, I'm confused and disoriented and um, in a lot of pain. I remember immediately saying, oh, my God, like it felt like a truck just ran right across my stomach. (laughs) That's what it felt like. And when I looked down, the whole side of my body was like completely disformed and like bloated and I just didn't even like recognize my own body. It was very strange. But where's Bob? Did the kidney take? Is he okay? When Karen looks around the recovery room, she sees her dad right next to her. And I do remember him reaching over and, like, grabbing my hand. And we were able to just, like, hold hands for a minute. And then, you know, I was just sort of like, you know, like I passed back out, right? So then my next memory is being in my hospital room and being, like, coming out of anesthesia and, like, being with it and, like, you know, understanding what's going on. And they said, you know, do you want to see your dad? So I said, yeah, you know, and and they wheel him in and all the jaundice is gone. He has all this color in his face and he's just like, hi, (laughs) you know, just raring to go and super thrilled. And he's holding this like Vermont teddy bear. I don't know if you remember Vermont teddy bears, but they're so nice. (laughs) That's a good teddy bear. So nice. So sweet. And he obviously had it like prepared, you know, we had that he and he like hid it from me. So he comes like wheeling into this room like ta-da, like this big reveal and he's like so happy and he like has this teddy bear that he gives me and he's just like chattering away, like you know, like doing great. Like nothing even happened except oh, he just got a kidney. How did it feel to see your dad 
just look so much better. I felt like I was right. <laughs> I did the right thing. Like, I, I knew that this was going to be good, and it is good. That's exactly how it felt. Bob feels great, and Karen feels great that Bob feels great, but she is physically not feeling great. This is a pretty major surgery, so she spends two weeks in the hospital recovering. Her brother comes to town to help Bob and Karen take care of Sugar Bear and take care of themselves, but really it's Karen who needs taking care of. Bob is doing the Charleston on top of a flagpole. Me, on the other hand, I was, like, laid up on the couch for a while. I was walking around really slowly. Um, you know, I wasn't able to, like, go up and down steps, and we had a split-level house at that point. So my brother was just kind of, like, at my beck and call for a little while. And once I was able to kind of get up and running, I was still, like, very slow. And it was really just a much harder recovery than I had anticipated. So there was no, hey, I'm just going to pop up and head right back to my old life. That was, like, not even a thought at that point because I had so much recovery ahead of me. A quick return to Spain is off the table. She's not going to be flying anytime soon. And as the reality of her own recovery sets in for Karen, the reality of her father's recovery starts to set in as well. Bob is doing great, but the risks of receiving a transplant are still there. The whole situation seemed very fragile, and I think that I just wanted to make sure that I didn't run off and kind of leave everybody hanging. And, you know, when I say everybody, I mean my dad. I just didn't want to leave him hanging. What did that gift that you gave him do to your relationship? It made it even stronger. Kidney donation or any type of organ donation, it's not the gift of the organ itself, it's really the gift of time. And there's so few chances where you can give time. Like you're going through your life and time is being taken away from you. Like you're, it's just ever constant that time is, is going away and it's getting shorter and it's getting shorter. And then all of a sudden you can give it back. You can give more of it. He started to like talk about the future in a way that he hadn't done in so long. Like I can't remember the last time my dad talked about wanting to travel again or to, you know, like, just go out and not have to rush home. 
like all of a sudden he could you know potentially like go to a concert you know or go to a late movie like just really really simple things and you could just see that like he was suddenly aware of all the possibilities and he truly believed that they were available and that he could do them and for me you know I kind of feel guilty saying this but I think that I started the realization of my possibilities kind of shrinking started to happen so like his were getting bigger and mine were kind of getting smaller because I started to realize probably not going to go back to Europe at this point and I'm probably not going to continue to lead the life that I was previously leaving and you know in a lot of ways kidney donation forced me to grow up like it sounds really cliche but it's a really big adult thing to do and I think that it made me recognize that you know this is a responsibility now that doesn't just end with an organ leaving your body I think deep down I felt responsible for his life because my organ was like propelling his life forward at that point and on a very deep level I think that I just felt the responsibility of whatever happened from that point out. We'll be right back. We're back. Karen has given her dad a kidney, which is awesome. I think really the best gift I ever gave my dad was I didn't. I never gave my dad really any. I once gave him like a mug with my picture on it that said number one dad. Anyways, Karen gave her dad a kidney. He's feeling really good. And while she's not going back to Spain, she is settling into a new life in Philadelphia. She's gotten her own place. She's gotten a job. She's got her own life going. She's picked maybe not the path for her life, but a path for her life. She's 22. She's got time to pick a different path. And she's made sure that her dad gets to spend more time on his path. I've said the word path too many times. But I'm very into walking lately. And also turtles. Anyways, one day, Karen is at her job at the department store where she works when she sees a friend of her dad's. Which wasn't totally out of the ordinary to see him because he regularly shopped there. You know, oh, there's John. Like, great. And I, like, kind of, like, did a wave or something. Like, I was smiling. I was happy to see him. And then as he got closer, I could see that there was this look on his face that, you know, is not the look of somebody, like, there to visit. Um, and he rushed up to me and he grabbed the side of my arms, like, and sort of like held me out in front of him. And the first thing he said was, 
I didn't want the police to come and be the ones to tell you. And like at that point, it's still not registering. And I can see out of the corner of my eye, I can see my friend and my coworker just sort of like backing away. And, and like, it was really the look on her face that made me realize that something was like tragically wrong because she could see in that moment what I couldn't see. And he said to me, you know, your dad, I found your dad and you know, I'm so sorry, but, you know, he's gone. And I just sort of remember looking at him and thinking that this wasn't real. He's just chugging along in life. He's talking about all the things he's going to do. You know, I just talked to him. I just saw him. He seems happy and healthy. And the next minute, you know, his friend is standing in front of you saying that he's dead. So I remember my friend ushering me back to my manager's office and I just sort of blurted out like my dad's dead and she just said go. You know I don't remember like how I got to my car. I don't remember driving to his house. Like I remember just sitting on you know the the front pavement and seeing ambulances there and like a fire truck there and just knowing that like he was already gone and then I went to the morgue and I had to essentially identify him and I remember saying to the coroner like the first thing I said was this is all my fault And he, like, looked at me and said, like, what? And I said, well, it's my kidney that failed. Like, this is all my fault. And he just didn't even know what to say. Like, I don't think he was expecting that. And I remember him saying something like, no, no, like, this isn't, this isn't your fault. But it really felt that way. was a lot. (laughs) Bob's kidney, Karen's kidney, did fail. But it's not Karen's fault. It's a risk of transplant. They both knew that, of course. But still, it was her kidney. The kidney she was so excited to be able to give him. The kidney that saved his life also killed him? No, I mean, no. As mature grown-ups, we say, Karen, don't do that to yourself. Logically, I know that I gave him two very happy years. But emotionally, it still feels like my fault. Because it was mine. And when you give something, you're still, it's still yours, no matter who it goes to, to some degree. Like, you're responsible for it. 
that responsibility like never left me emotionally and I don't know if it ever will Did the doctors tell you anything that would have satisfied you or made you feel better? The doctors told me that my kidney was his best possible shot because I was young, I was healthy, I was a match. There's nothing that could have been a better scenario for him. The only way it could have been better for me is if it was somebody else's so that I could be mad at them as opposed to myself. That's present-day Karen talking with 20-some years of perspective. But at this point in the story, Karen is in her early 20s, and she's now an orphan. She has her older brother, but she doesn't have anyone else. Nobody else, you might be thinking, really? No one, just the two of them? And you are right, we are forgetting someone, because she has sugar bear the dog. And when Bob died, Karen took that little flooper back and loved her just like Bob did. I took her everywhere. We went everywhere. I moved to Florida for seven years. She came then. I moved back from Florida. She came with me. She went through boyfriends. She went through breakups. She went through deaths, you know, and she was always there. Sugar Bear died. I'm sorry. It's like we got to give you another. Sugar Bear dies too. Sugar Bear died, but she was 16. She was happy. She was peaceful. Things, it's okay. We're okay with Sugar Bear. And now it's been 20 years since Bob died. And Karen is married to a great guy, and she's a great mom. I think the saddest part for me is being a parent. And not truly knowing my dad as a parent. Like, you cannot appreciate the magnitude of what your parents did for you until you become a parent yourself. I mean, it will always be sad that, you know, my dad couldn't walk me down the aisle or that he's, you know, never going to meet my husband or my kids. That's always going to be sad to me, but the the real tragedy is that I, I'm not able to express all the gratitude that I feel for him being my dad. That's the worst part, 20 years later, and forever. How has your dad's death affected how you raise your kids? 
I definitely love really, really hard. And the not so nice part is that I have a lot of anxiety surrounding my kids because I'm always scared that there's a possibility that they might not know me or that they'll go through something similar. You know, I just try and love them really hard and I always, always get family photos. Like those are so important to me. I regularly get a professional photographer to do them and I try and take as many as I can at home because if something ever happened, I would always want them to have all these memories. I don't have as many photos of my dad as I would like. And I think that's one of the reasons why I cherish, you know, that photo of me coming home because not only is it happy and it's emotional and it's, you know, such a special time, but it's a great photo of me and my dad. Karen said that she gave her dad the gift of time. He had two years of life unencumbered by daily dialysis. Two years of time together back in the suburbs of Philadelphia. But after the death of a person you love, time is a very different thing. Sometimes time feels like your enemy, pulling you further and further away from the person you loved. Because of time, their memory gets a little hazier. Because of time, their voice is harder to remember. Because of time, you can't remember what exactly they smelled like. Their actual memory, the what of them, that stays with you, stays in you. It's a part of you forever. But there are moments when they return to you full force. Moments where you remember the absolute specificity of who they were. And that is when time feels irrelevant. What makes me think of my dad? Dad jokes. <laughs> um, if, like, my husband says the faucet's running, I'll think, we'll go and catch it. <laughs> Always going to be funny. <laughs> classic Bob. Um, classic Bob. Doers on the rocks. Look, there's a lot that makes me think of him, but, you know, a lot of it's abstract. You know, I might be out with my kids and I'll have this memory of, like, being out with my dad like as a young kid or at the grocery store or, you know, I'll see a picture of Sugar Bear and I'll remember, you know, them falling asleep in a chair together. But, you know, mostly, mostly the dad jokes.
This has been Terrible Thanks for Asking, and I'm Nora McNerney. Our senior producer is Hans Butel. Hans, do you have any dad jokes? Blank stares. Our... <laughs> Obviously not. All of, all of Hans's jokes are, like, very highbrow. <laughs> I'm like, blank, blank. I don't... Was I supposed to know Latin to get that one? I don't know. Um, Marcel Malikibu, our associate producer... Hannah Meacock Ross, literally just the, the wind beneath our wings. Jordan um, Turgeon, big helper, big help. Uh, Megan Palmer, intern, once snorted during the credits in our latest episode. Uh, we got help this week from Curtis Gilbert. Curtis Gilbert is just a champ, the best. Can we? Is he out there? Can we look at him? Oh. We can see him at his desk sometimes from the studio, and sometimes we just look at him and we think, say out loud, we say, Curtis is a great guy, and we just watch him work. And I think that's fine. I think that's an okay thing that we do together. Savvy Robinson and Alex Baumhart, also, thank you. We do not watch you work, but we will. You can follow me on Instagram at Nora Borealis, or follow uh, this show on Instagram at TTFA Podcast. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and we are a production of American Public Media.